Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, June 21st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. Hunter Biden strikes a plea deal with the DOJ. President Biden warns of a real threat of Putin using tactical nuclear weapons. India's Modi leaves for his first state visit to the U.S. Four Israelis are killed in a West Bank gas station attack. China and Cuba are reportedly in talks to open a military site. U.S. news chain Gannett sues Google. Intel confirms plans to build a $33 billion chip plant in Germany. French police search the 2024 Olympics organizers' offices. The UN adopts its first-ever treaty to protect the high seas. And researchers find naps help aging brains. Hunter Biden strikes a plea deal on taxes and gun charges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, Politico, and Reuters. According to the U.S. DOJ court filings on Tuesday, Hunter Biden has agreed to plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors and has struck a deal to resolve a felony gun charge as part of a plea agreement with federal prosecutors. The deal ends a five-year DOJ investigation into President Joe Biden's son over whether or not his income was properly reported on his tax returns and if false statements were made on paperwork to purchase a gun. In 2017 and 2018, Hunter Biden failed to pay more than $100,000 in taxes and was in possession of a gun while a drug user in 2018. The deal, contingent on approval by a judge, recommends Biden be placed on probation for the tax charges, where he would likely avoid jail time provided he complies with yet-to-be-determined release conditions. The gun charge will be dropped if he completes a diversion program. The Trump-appointed U.S. attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, spearheaded the investigation, which initially examined his foreign business dealings during his career as a lawyer, lobbyist, and investment banker. The House of Representatives Oversight Committee has also been conducting investigation into Biden's affairs. The DOJ says their investigation into Hunter Biden will still continue after the deal. The GOP has made allegations of misconduct and criminality against Biden a centerpiece, with President Biden vowing not to interfere with any investigations into his son. All right. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. The Washington Examiner brings us the Republican narrative spin. Hunter Biden has once again gotten a pass for flouting the laws of the land. But his legal travails seem far from over. Biden got a sweetheart deal for charges that would have landed any other American in jail which raises concerns over the impartiality of this investigation. Despite the deal, Hunter is far from exonerated, morally or legally, as concerns over his personal conduct and influence peddling continue to mount. Here's the Democratic narrative from NBC News. Hunter Biden was prosecuted by a Trump-appointed attorney for charges that are rarely ever pursued. The GOP has attempted to smear the Biden family for years over Hunter's troubled past, but it doesn't bode well for their own sham investigations if a plea deal is the best they can do. Hunter has taken accountability for his past and is going to pay his debt to society. It's time to move on. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 25% chance that Hunter Biden will be indicted before November 5th of 2024. An article in Golf Magazine that I read a long time ago, and it was like, Trump the golfer. 
how good of a golfer is Trump? Mm. And I, I'm interested in stuff like that. Like whatever you think of Trump, like, is he actually a good golfer? Like, like what's the deal here? And it turns out, but he's a pretty splendid golfer actually. Uh. But like, I'm interested in, you know, not so much giving the devil his due, but like what it, cause especially so many of these people who are prominent, they have to be really good at something. Why do we even know who this is? Yeah. Um, now, no, in the case of Hunter Biden, perhaps it was family stuff. I don't really know. But I don't Maybe he was a really good lawyer, lobbyist and investment banker. Maybe he was really good at one or all of those things. And I think it, whatever ended up happening, you know, it's possible that he's being compensated for being an amazing you know, lobbyist or something. Who knows? I might guess, based on the very little that I know about Hunter Biden and being a person in a political family. Uh, not me, him, um, that mm. perhaps he maybe felt kind of pressured to go into some kind of work that he didn't like. Right. right. So maybe he hated investment banking and uh, and didn't want to become an attorney. But he's, you know, right. he was pressured into it or felt that he needed to fill those shoes. And right. that's where the drugs came in. You know, Somehow the path of least resistance for him was this like high profile deal maker life when he would have been happier in a more mundane uh, existence. Yeah. Yeah. Pushed him. President Biden says the threat of Putin using tactical nuclear weapons is real. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Institute for the Study of War, The Guardian and U.S. News and World Report. After denouncing Russia's placement of tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus as absolutely irresponsible on Saturday, U.S. President Biden on Monday said the threat of Russian President Vladimir Putin using such weapons was real. Speaking at a donor event in California, Biden said, When I was out here about two years ago saying I worried about the Colorado River drying up, everyone looked at me like I was crazy. They looked at me like that when I said I worry about Putin using tactical nuclear weapons. It's real. However, U.S. officials say they have no intention of changing the country's stance on Russia's development of tactical nuclear weapons which are shorter range and less powerful than traditional nuclear warheads in Belarus. They say the U.S. has not seen any sign that Russia is preparing to use a nuclear weapon in general. Administration officials have similarly toned down Biden's remarks on Russia and nuclear weapons in the past. Last October, Biden told a fundraiser, Putin is not joking when he talks about the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons, adding that it would inevitably lead to Armageddon. Shortly thereafter, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman, said the president was speaking about concerns about Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons. We have not seen any reason to adjust our own strategic nuclear posture, nor do we have indications that Russia is preparing to imminently use nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, in its latest assessment, the Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, a U.S. military-affiliated think tank that tracks the war, also suggested that it didn't share Biden's calculus on the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. It said, ISW has long assessed that Russia will likely keep tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus in order to consolidate de facto control of Belarus, but maintains that this deployment is extraordinarily unlikely to have battlefield impacts in Ukraine. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And we'll begin this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from foreign policy. Biden has a very complex task in trying to ensure that America's nuclear posture remains appropriate in the face of real and evolving Russian nuclear threats. This is a delicate line that must be balanced between making the stakes too high for Moscow and not promising consequences you're unwilling to inflict. 
Biden is managing the situation well, but would be well advised to revisit the lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we have an establishment critical narrative from The Guardian. Despite the nuclear threats from Putin, it's far from certain that he'd be willing to be the first leader to have used the weapon since 1945. If his goal is to stay in power, then it's the wrong way to go about it. Plus, even if he did make the order for a nuclear strike, he has no guarantee it would be executed down the chain of command, nor can he guarantee that the dated weapons and delivery systems will work. The risks are overstated. And there's another nerd narrative on this story. This time says there's a 1% chance that Russia will detonate a nuclear weapon in Ukraine before 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. India's Modi will make his first U.S. state visit as prime minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Indian Express, Al Jazeera, and India Gulf News. Though he has visited the U.S. six times since assuming office in 2014, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will make his first state visit to Washington from June 21st to the 23rd, where he will attend a state dinner with U.S. President Joe Biden, hold talks with Biden and VP Kamala Harris, and celebrate International Yoga Day at the U.N. in New York. Before leaving Tuesday, Modi tweeted, We seek to deepen India-USA ties in key sectors like trade, commerce, innovation, technology, and other such areas. Military ties are also expected to be on the agenda. Though suspicious of each other during the Cold War, the two nations have grown closer over the last 20 years, with President Trump and Biden both publicly pushing for stronger ties. However, Washington reportedly wants to limit New Delhi's ties to Russia while working together to thwart China's growing presence in Asia. Alongside talks with the executive branch, including what the U.S. Defense Department says will be really big, historic, and exciting announcements regarding military cooperation and boosting India's indigenous military industrial base, Modi will also address U.S. Congress on Thursday. Meanwhile, Human Rights Watch is calling on Biden to confront Modi on India's alleged worsening human rights situation, including its treatment of Muslims and other non-Hindus and the recent conviction of Modi's main political opponent, Rahul Gandhi. Amid fears over its military and economic ties to Russia, with India having increased its purchase of Russian oil, the U.S. is expected to approve General Electric's manufacturing of Indian fighter jets and sell 31 armed MQ-9B Sea Guardian drones worth $3 billion, among other moves. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a left narrative spin from Human Rights Watch. As Biden condemns recent attacks on civil rights in his own country, it's time for him to push Modi to do the same in his. Modi's ruling party has persecuted religious minorities, opposition activists, and journalists, acts that are wholly antithetical to American values. If Washington wishes to strengthen economic and military relations with New Delhi, it should ensure that they are built on mutual values of respect and dignity for all citizens. Op India gives us the right narrative. Despite empty accusations from opposition leaders, Modi grabbed the world by the reins in 2014 and has only grown more popular every year since. From bolstering the economy at home to paying homage to the Indian diaspora throughout the developed world, he has gained unprecedented respect from presidents and prime ministers to doctors and scientists alike. Prior to Modi's rule, Indians longed for a global figure to call their own. And Modi has become and continues to prove to be that man. 
And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 23% chance that the U.S. will offer India a nuclear submarine before the year 2026. Uh, the thing I remember, so I'm a novice yoga person. I've done a handful of yoga classes. And I remember the per- there was, it was in a yoga class and there was some some guy in there that had obviously done his fair, more than his share of yoga. And he was like really stretching far and all these things. And at the end of the class, he came over and he was like, wow, you're so lucky. I'm like, huh? Cause I was barely, I was huffing and puffing through this yoga class. And he was like, you're so lucky. Like you only have to stretch a little bit to get like way more benefit than I get from stretching far. You should really enjoy this. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, huh. Is that a backhanded compliment? (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. So, but he's, but he's right. Like I was getting a big stretch out of not stretching that much. He has to, you know, reach around the world to get the same stretch I was getting. So. Right. Right. But but what's the point of that? If you're, if you're already loose, then you should be able to skip the stretch. Well, he should just go do something else. Yeah. I guess so. I guess so. But with that attitude, you never get to that point. You know, it's like when we say like, why doesn't uh, these rich guys give away their money? Well, with that attitude, they never would have gotten rich. So. Yeah, with that attitude, he wouldn't have turned into Gumby. Four Israeli tragedy strikes the West Bank as four Israelis are killed in a gas station attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Monitor, BBC News, CNN, The Guardian, and Reuters. On Tuesday, Israeli authorities confirmed that Palestinian gunmen killed four Israeli settlers and wounded four others near the settlement of Eli in the West Bank. One of the attackers was killed at the scene, and Israeli forces launched a manhunt in pursuit of additional suspects. Defense Minister Yov Gallant met with Israeli military chief of staff Herzi Halevi, Shin Bet chief Ronan Barr, and other security chiefs to assess the situation, with Gallant warning that all options are on the table in an apparent reference to a potentially larger operation across the West Bank. The BBC reported that a second alleged attacker was shot and killed near the Palestinian town of Tubas in the northern West Bank after stealing a car and fleeing the scene. News reports indicate that two gunmen arrived in a car and opened fire at people at a gas station and a nearby restaurant. Right-wing police minister Itamar Ben-Gavir called on Prime Minister Netanyahu to launch a full-scale military operation in the West Bank. Hamas claimed that at least one of the gunmen was part of its armed wing adding that the attack was in response to an Israeli raid into Janine on Monday. The attack comes only a day after Israeli forces launched a large raid into the northern West Bank city of Janine, leading to heavy clashes with local fighters that involved the rare usage of Israeli attack helicopters. Six Palestinians were killed and over 90 were wounded. The situation in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel has been deteriorating, with Israel launching regular raids into the West Bank, especially in the north, following a series of Palestinian attacks last year. Since the start of the year, at least 164 Palestinians and 21 Israelis have been killed, excluding this most recent attack. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll begin this round of spin with a pro-Israel narrative from Times of Israel. Palestinian terrorism cannot be tolerated, and Israel will respond aggressively to defend its civilian population. Israeli forces in the area will be bolstered, arrests will be carried out, and the homes of these terrorists will be demolished in response to their brutal crimes. And the pro-Palestine narrative comes from Al Jazeera. Though this attack is, of course, a tragedy, it comes in the context of increased Israeli settlement and aggression in the occupied West Bank. Just on Monday, Israel killed six Palestinians, sparking yet another cycle of violence 
as Palestinians respond to increased Israeli provocations. A report says that China and Cuba are in talks to open a military training site. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, MSN, The Guardian, Washington Post, and PBS NewsHour. China and Cuba are in talks to build a new joint military training facility on the northern coast of the Caribbean island, The Wall Street Journal reported on Tuesday, citing unnamed U.S. officials. The alleged bilateral talks are at an advanced stage, according to the newspaper, raising concerns in Washington that the joint effort could lead to China permanently stationing troops in Cuba and expanding its alleged spying activities against the U.S. The Biden administration reportedly contacted Cuban officials to prevent the alleged deal, which is said to be part of an initiative by the Chinese military to expand its global military footprint and logistical operations network, codenamed Project 141. Earlier in June, the Wall Street Journal claimed that China reached a secret agreement with Cuba to establish an electronic eavesdropping facility to collect electronic communications about 100 miles from Florida. However, both the White House and Pentagon later said the report was inaccurate, with the Biden administration acknowledging the existence of a Chinese spy station in Cuba that reportedly dates back to at least 2019 and received unspecified upgrades. The new report comes as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up his visit to China on Monday, saying he had agreed with China's President Xi Jinping to stabilize deteriorating bilateral relations, but they had not reached an agreement on resuming military-to-military contacts. Thanks for that rundown, Melissa. We have a pro-China narrative from Global Times. The hype about the so-called Chinese spy balloons has hardly vanished into thin air when the U.S. media and certain circles of the U.S. political establishment come up with fresh tales to undermine any meaningful Sino-U.S. dialogue. The allegations are all the more remarkable given that it is the U.S. that maintains the world's largest network of military bases and spy posts, even in Cuba. Washington should take a hard look at itself before projecting its own activities onto others and claiming the moral high ground. Fox News brings us an anti-China narrative. The latest news about military and intelligence cooperation between China and Cuba is reminiscent of the darkest days of the Cold War. Through their malign activities, the two communist regimes pose a threat not only to national security of the U.S., but also to that of the entire free world. Even if not all reports are 100% accurate, one thing is certain. Washington must not downplay the threat and act promptly and decisively to counter this growing and perilous alliance in the U.S.'s backyard. And the forecasting community at Metaculus brings us this nerd narrative. They predict that there's a 15% chance of war between the U.S. and China before the year 2035. Here's my opinion. Instead of China opening a military training facility in Cuba, what if they opened a restaurant? So is are you saying they try to battle us on the cultural battlefield rather than the battlefield battlefield? I'm just saying some Sino-Cuban food. Oh, you're just hungry. Is what? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Understood. Yeah. Dinner time. <laughs> yep. Gotcha. That sounds amazing. U.S. news chain Gannett sues Google and alleges an online ad monopoly. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Examiner, The Register, CNN, New York Times, and Al Jazeera. 
the largest newspaper chain in the U.S. and owner of USA Today, Gannett, filed a lawsuit against Google and parent company Alphabet Inc. in Manhattan Federal Court Tuesday. The suit alleges that Google holds a monopoly over digital ad exchanges and forces publishers to use its own ad buying and selling service. The lawsuit claims that while digital advertising became a $200 billion per year industry last year, news publishers have seen an approximate 70% decline in ad revenue, thus putting journalists out of work and forcing newspapers into bankruptcy. According to eMarketer, Google controls roughly a quarter of the digital ad market. Meta, Amazon, and TikTok combine for another third, and news publishers and other websites take the other 40%. Gannett argues the reason for Google's disproportional success is because Google and Alphabet unlawfully have acquired and maintained monopolies for the advertising technology, or ad tech tools, that publishers and advertisers use to buy and sell online ad space. Similar lawsuits against Google were also filed by the U.S. Department of Justice in January 2020, as well as three filed by groups of state attorneys general. The U.S. Senate is also considering passing the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, which would allow publishers to team up to negotiate better prices for ads. More recently, the European Commission filed a similar case, and the U.K.'s antitrust agency has been investigating Google's advertising practices. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins. We'll begin with Narrative A from USA Today. Today, 86% of Americans receive their news online. However, through its deceitful and monopolistic tactics, Google has destroyed the economic competition among newspapers by vying for ad space, which bankrupts smaller outlets that people love and rely on. Beyond the simple antitrust component of this case, Google must face legal repercussions to ensure it ends its profit-driven crusade to wipe local news off the face of the Internet. And Narrative B comes from the Washington Examiner. First and foremost, Google's so-called monopoly on the digital ad space dropped from a minority stake of 31.6% in 2019 to an even smaller minority stake of 26.4% in 2022. Furthermore, Google does not compete with or disadvantage traditional print forms of media, which contradicts the idea that it controls the entire newspaper industry. The lawsuits filed by both governments and industry competitors have blown Google's online power way out of proportion. I, I feel like I have read USA Today, mm, let's call it 20 times in the last 10 years, and every time has been in a hotel. Like they're always the yes, paper that's in the hotel, right? They are right? the hotel paper. And which I don't understand because a hotel knows where it is. Like you don't have to have a USA Today. I bet you know, they I, have a monopoly on it. Well, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Intel will build a $33 billion chip plant in Germany. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, Bloomberg, Intel, Quartz and McKenzie & Company. On Monday, California-based Intel Corporation confirmed signing a $33 billion deal with the German government to build two chip manufacturing plants in Magdeburg. The announcement comes after Berlin agreed to cover a third of the investment, or 9.9 billion euros, making it Germany's biggest ever foreign investment. The deal also comes after Intel announced plans for chip plants worth $4.6 billion and $25 billion in Poland and Israel, respectively. According to Intel, the facility in Magdeburg, along with chip plants in Ireland and Poland, will create an end-to-end -end semiconductor manufacturing value chain in Europe. 
News of Intel's investment followed the company's 2022 announcement to restructure its graphics chips business to keep up with the competitors such as NVIDIA and Advanced Micro Devices, or AMD. According to McKinsey, the global semiconductor industry, poised for a decade of growth, is expected to become a trillion-dollar industry by 2030. Deloitte brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Intel's multi-billion dollar investment into the EU will significantly boost its chip production amid rising geopolitical tensions. Besides diversifying Europe's supply chains, Intel's chip plants can make the EU more self-sufficient in semiconductors, optimizing the continent's semiconductor industry and allowing tech companies to source the chips in no time. The Register brings us an establishment critical narrative. Intel's investment spree in the EU stems from the bloc's deteriorating relations with Beijing and the U.S.'s ongoing chip war in China. The move will backfire and hurt the EU and Western semiconductor industry as China is fighting back with new investments to make its chip manufacturing more self-sufficient. The PRC will soon catch up and overtake America in the technology stakes. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 10% chance that there will be an emergency shutdown at a Taiwan semiconductor facility before January 1st of 2025. French police search Paris's 2024 Olympics organizers' offices. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and BBC News. On Tuesday, French anti-corruption officers searched the Olympic Organizing Committee's headquarters in the Paris suburb of Saint-Denis and the offices of Solidio, the public body that's coordinating building projects for the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. The National Financial Prosecutor's Office, or PNF, said it was looking into allegations of embezzlement of public funds and favoritism in contracts awarded that stemmed from a preliminary investigation that was launched in 2017. Meanwhile, the Solidio office search was part of a preliminary investigation that resulted from an audit in 2022 conducted by the PNF. The Paris Organizing Committee said it was cooperating with the search, but wouldn't offer further comment on the situation. In 2017, the International Olympic Committee awarded Paris the 2024 Summer Games and simultaneously awarded Los Angeles, Paris's only competing bid, the 2028 Summer Games. The sporting event has seen allegations of corruption in the past, with claims of voter fraud leading to the expulsion of a number of IOC members during the 2021 Tokyo Olympics and the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Games. Thanks for those facts, Scott. We'll start with Narrative A from Politico. French President Emmanuel Macron emphasized how important it would be for his country to host an Olympics free of corruption or other issues and now his reputation could be tarnished. Based on other recent scandals, it seems it's impossible to host an Olympics without some form of corruption casting a shadow over the Games. And Narrative B comes from Israel Hayam. Sure, Paris could become the third straight Summer Games organizer to be caught up in a corruption crackdown following Rio de Janeiro and Tokyo, but those cities have something else in common. Their Olympic Games went off without a hitch. When the dust settles... No one will remember anything except the exceptional displays of athleticism at the Paris Games. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 56% chance that France will place in the top five at the 2024 Paris Olympics. 
See, this is disappointing about the Olympics starting to be held in, at least to my biased Western eyes, like cities that made sense, you know, Los Angeles and uh, and, and Rio and, and Paris, is that these cities could better handle the games without having to be as corrupt or, or, or you know, make stadiums where there weren't any before, things like that. Like Paris should be okay. able to pull this off, you would think. Right. You're, you're, you're just talking about the sheer size of a city. Yeah, I mean, and the infrastructure is kind of already in place. They don't need to build a right. new airport and a new stadium. Like we, we kind of have all the things that you would want from an Olympics experience kind of already exist in Paris already. So yeah. the World Cup in the Middle East, you know, you had to build all these new facilities, which may or may not have been, you know, funded right. in the best way. Yeah, but even the Beijing Olympics, people talk about that too. You know, there's, uh, there's, you know, the stadiums were built, these magnificent stadiums were built. And then there's, you know, plenty of websites online that show how they're just abandoned. And it's kind of eerie and beautiful that like the earth is kind of reclaiming these huge monuments. You know, I'm sure there's so many other factors in, uh, in a, a city like Paris with big infrastructure already um, that, has its own problems. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, well, the other it goes back to what I was talking about when different companies are, uh, you know, expanding and putting their new headquarters in in various established cities. In a perfect world, you would put the Olympics somewhere that could benefit from it happening. You know, some some place that needs the eye of the world to look at it, and then a bunch of money gets infused into that area and it becomes a hotbed of its own. It seems like what happens is, you know, the carpetbaggers come to town, strip everything from the place, put it on TV for a minute and then leave it off worse than it used to be. Yeah. Like, is there a world where we could pick the next uh, Olympic destination based on who needs the most help? And it could become kind of a, uh, it could become kind of a uh, humanitarian and yeah. athletic event. It's like same. it's like Live Aid meets Olympics. Like that's where it yeah. needs to be. Yeah, that's think, a good idea. I think we should do that. Someone pa- call uh, what's his name, Bob Geldof. The UN adopts its first ever high seas treaty. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, ABC News, CBS, Offshore Energy, and the Associated Press. On Monday, the UN adopted the world's first treaty to safeguard the high seas and preserve marine biodiversity in international waters. The legally binding accord follows an agreement in March wherein delegates from over 100 countries pledged to protect at least 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. The high seas, which cover over 60% of the Earth's surface, will now be protected by the Treaty on Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction. The treaty, which will be formally presented at the UN General Assembly meeting on September 20th, must be ratified by 60 countries for it to come into force. The treaty creates a legal framework to establish marine protected areas, share the benefits of marine genetic resources in international waters, and conduct environmental impact assessments to ensure commercial activities are carried out sustainably. The treaty provides the UN with the legal means to reach the Global Biodiversity Framework's target of shielding 30% of the planet's land and water by 2030. Currently, approximately 1% of the high seas are protected. According to UN estimates, over 17 million metric tons of plastic entered the world's ocean in 2021, which is 85% of all marine litter, with the number expected to double or triple by 2040 
Moreover, it's estimated that unless action is taken, more plastic may be in the sea than fish by 2050. Meanwhile, Russia termed the treaty unacceptable, saying it didn't reach a reasonable balance between conserving and using ocean resources. Well, thanks for those facts, Melissa. Narrative A comes from Earth.org. The treaty is humanity's first serious attempt at triumph at managing international waters in the environmental fight. It's the perfect example of global threats being challenged by global action. The world's oceans are home to up to 10 million species and hold invaluable resources for billions of people, and the accord will undoubtedly push countries to stop destroying the high seas. Narrative B comes from nature. Although the treaty is undoubtedly a success for the environment, biodiversity, and the world, it's important not to overstate its potential. The likes of shipping routes that melt ice covers and deep sea mining are activities that will not face scrutiny under this treaty. Moreover, unsustainable fishing in areas already covered by legal agreements cannot be protected further. We must continue to be led by science and support offshore conservation. Narrative C comes from Patriot Post. Current mainstream climate policies are often incredibly costly and deliver peanuts. Also, the UN still needs to meet goals set in similar treaties in the past. Instead of sacrificing the amazing opportunities natural resources continue to provide for us, greater emphasis must be placed on developing technology to explore and access the high seas. And there's another nerd narrative here. This one says there's a 31% chance that the EU will meet its 2030 targets under the Paris Climate Treaty. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And stay awake for our final story. Naps apparently help the brain with healthy aging. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Daily Mail, Independent, BBC News, and The Evening Standard. Researchers at University College London and the University of the Republic in Uruguay have found that napping regularly may help keep the brain healthy as it ages. The scientists said that brief daytime naps may compensate for poor sleep and be correlated with more extensive brain volume. As people age, the brain begins to shrink. From age 35, the brain begins to shrink at a rate of 0.2% to 0.5% per year. This can contribute to issues like memory lapses and dementia. Dr. Victoria Garfield from the University College London said, Our findings suggest that, for some people, short daytime naps may be part of the puzzle that could help preserve the health of the brain as we get older. The team found that nappers' brains were 15 cubic centimeters larger, equivalent to delaying aging by between three and six years. However, daytime sleep can be difficult in many careers, as work culture often frowns upon this practice. The new findings, published in the journal Sleep Health, looked at 97 fragments of DNA to determine people's likelihood of habitual napping. They compared these measures to those who did not have these changes, using data from over 378,000 people. Dr. Garfield expressed her excitement over the study's findings and said that napping is a relatively easy health intervention. She added, I hope studies such as this one showing the health benefits of short naps can help reduce any stigma that still exists around daytime napping. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. We'll begin with a narrative A from The Guardian. Researchers now say that a daily nap is good for you, can prevent your brain from shrinking, and improve cognition. Catching a little Z's for about 30 minutes after lunch can have meaningful neurological benefits. 30, but not more than 90-minute naps daily are a major asset to long-term health. 
And narrative B comes from The Guardian. Scientific consensus about the correlation between Alzheimer's and daytime naps is still mixed. While this most recent study says that daytime naps can slow brain shrinkage associated with aging and neurodegenerative diseases, previous studies claim that excessive napping is a sign of cognitive decline. More research needs to be done on this topic before any sort of definitive conclusions can be made. You're a health professional, Melissa. Where do you stand on the a napping issue? Oh, we call it a power nap in America, right? It's yeah. Like, and that's what I've read. That's the literature I've read is between 20 and 30 minutes. That's the power nap. You won't actually get into a sleep cycle. You'll feel nice and refreshed. And I've tried it on myself. It's it's very true. Melissa, have you heard of the, the Napa Latte? Ooh, no. It sounds so, like two things I love. Yeah. So what you're supposed to do, the, the theory is, so you're supposed to take that short nap. The, the 10, 15, 20 minute nap. Yeah. And also it takes about that amount of time for caffeine to take its effect. Yes. So what you're supposed to do is drink the caffeine all and at once then go to sleep. and then take the nap. And then you'll wake up in 20 minutes with the benefits of the nap and a start from the, uh, the lot, the, the drink, the, the caffeine drink. Man, that sounds like a, a millennial hack right there. Yeah. It's a, not a bad idea. <laughs> nap a latte. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, June 21st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.